May the force be with you is a phrase used to wish a person well to overcome a challenge. The invitation in this podcast, May the Life Force Be With You, is to explore what it means to truly feel alive, to appreciate the physical, emotional and spiritual connection to our energy, and finally to understand how this impacts who you are and all that you do. May this conversation inspire you to thrive. This episode of May the Life Force Be With You is brought to you by Moment Company and The Moment Pebble. The Moment Pebble is a beautiful, natural stone, light-guided breathing device and is a unique gift for someone who needs that gentle reminder to stop and take a break, to take moments throughout their busy day and to practice mindfulness. Just head over to momentcompany.co, that's momentcompany.co and enter the code LIFEFORCE at checkout to receive an exclusive 10% podcast discount. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our latest episode of May the Life Force Be With You. And this episode is definitely brought to you from Australia, as we have <laughs> the most amazing guest with us this, uh, this evening. This is an evening recording for us, and that is Jo Roberts. And she is an earth keeper and shamanic witch based in rural Australia. And she's a passion for working with plants, people and community. And she's the founder of the NFP Red Earth Ecology, which combines art, place and nature to connect and connection to reawaken identification with the earth and personal agency. She's an artist and deep ecology facilitator, a gardener, a singer, a magician and a feminist shit stirrer <laughs> who is service to life and the cosmos. Wow, what an introduction, Joe! Hello and welcome. <laughs> Ah, thank you. Uh, you've got to take full advantages of these paragraphs that you're given to really like let it rip and <laughs> condense it all. You let it rip. I love it. Uh, that's kind of sounds pretty amazing when it's like you know 35 years work condensed into a paragraph. But like, there's been plenty of um, you know spells in my life when it hasn't been that exciting. Yeah, really overjoyed to be uh, here with you both in well, you uh, various so time slots. Yeah, <laughs> and you mentioned just before we we press record that you had spent some time because of that time zone variance. You know, we're doing this later in the evening, and sometimes you know, as we all know, our life force fluctuates throughout the day. And you'd mentioned that you'd set some intention and done some grounding to to get ready for this, and I'd. If it's all right, I'd love to to ask you to share what what that intention setting and grounding looked like. Sure. So it involved me just stepping outside for a couple of minutes to sort of acknowledge that the sun was setting and go right. It's the the evenings happening, and this is a transition time, and I'm moving into a, tr- a transition where I'm going to be doing an interview soon, and it's going to be public, and then <laughs> I kind of. Connected in a sort of heart prayer where I asked for all of our energies to come together in the highest good and for all of the outcomes and ripples that came from our conversation to be in the greatest good for everyone on earth, for the planet, for the cosmos, for ourselves. And it's just sort of a, a way of bringing the three of us into a field together, really. And um kind of a good practice for me like I've I've long been working with energy but 
I'm just in the final week of a three-month deep immersion um, into learning about the mechanics of, of channeling and working with energetics a lot more deeply. So um, this week has been integration week, so I've had lots and lots of, of practice at just like getting that foundational stuff like uh, down pat. And so, yeah, prayer, prayer I have come to realise is a big part of how I boost my energy by handing things over to uh, to spirit or to just the energies that are around me that have got more life force than I do at that moment and asking for their, their currents to kind of enter my own body, I guess, like, yeah, and boost my energy. But uh, we were sort of, um, I was primed a bit for this by being told that the opening question is often about, you know, how, how do you define or what's your, your own experience of life force? So I've been thinking on that a bit today and I think it's uh, the answer for me is, is threefold really. I was thinking about like well, where does life force come from, what is it, and in some ways to me, it's an emanation of the great mystery. Uh, when I think about the actual physical, where does that energy come from? I sort of feel like humanity and, and all of creation is this just one giant wave of consequence from that first something that came from nothing, you know. And um, so at one level, that's sort of, what life force is, that's what's available for us, this, this huge emanation of, and I, I was sort of thinking about where, how does, that's, that's the mystery, how does something come from nothing, you know, and then I was thinking about at a human level what's, what's life force and that moment of conception in a way sort of mirrors that big bang experience of this explosion of like potential and, and energy where again, it seems that something comes from nothing and that expression of physical life force, I think, is a combination of so many things, genetics and where you are on the planet and where all of the matter in the cosmos is at that particular moment and where, how that affects the way that gravity uh, shapes your your physical body and character and that's kind of your your innate life force and what you've got to work with. And then I was thinking about the idea of force as your ability to extend your energy into your environment to actually like create influence and that sort of like definition of life force as well as an extension of personal agency and how for me in the things that I'm interested in, like those three three aspects really from the, the cosmos right down to empowering individuals to reconnect with that sense of like awe in their their life force, not just the definitions that they've got placed around what their, their life is or its meaning or its capacity. And so I think if I define my work, it really has been largely based around agency, I think, and trying to instill greater agency in other people 
always saying to groups of encouraging people to rebel and like you know why are we putting up with this and like we could do this ourselves better like why don't we give it a go and um yeah but how you know Karina discontent yeah the punk doesn't matter if you're punk you're punk look at our hair like if you're brought up punk you're brought up punk like the punk spirit never leaves you it's it's really true and um I was really uh, I had an experience of running for local council a couple of years ago and working out how how to again it was this opportunity sort of to crystallize a lot of philosophy really and um to put into practice another like skill which I think is really underrated as far as uh helping flow to uh existing groups or between people is flexibility and adaptability that ability to sort of pitch your message in a number of different ways easily rather than trying to convert people I guess to when I first started off in ecology you know I really wanted to work with people who were inflamed with passion and desire for the earth and the betterment of the earth and then I realized what I wanted to do was have more vegetation in the ground it was the outcome that I was more interested in than the means and of course I don't want to like behave in unethical ways to achieve my ends but if the end result is the same it doesn't really matter whether somebody's doing something for Gaia or whether they're doing it so that they can get more profit on their fat lands because now they've got a windbreak in you know what I mean the plants are there they're in community, they're doing their thing, and eventually their existence hopefully will work, have its effect energetically on the farmer who goes past the tree lot every day and is exposed to the vegetation. So, you know. Can you speak more on that? Because you mentioned at the you mentioned about taking life force from something around that has more life force and like that for me I was like oh that's interesting and I kind of feel like you know you're saying like it doesn't really matter how the plants get in but then they're gonna affect and I agree with you but I just love you to to talk more about that that relationship and exchange yeah, I think a deep laziness drives this philosophy <laughs> at its heart. And another way of looking at that laziness, which is a very value, and I'm joking, is like how to create more ease and flow. And in that talking about energy and the mechanics of, of energy, the most energy is required at the beginning of projects. Like to go from stasis to momentum is a huge amount of energy, you know, not even just movement, but to get it to the point of momentum on its own where it's self-propelling, yeah. And so, and it's in fact in this channeling course, a lot of the exercises where I became a lot more aware that there are really passive ways to gain energy where you don't have to actually expend personal energy to gain that energy. And it's been really interesting actually doing laps at the pool and. Um, I've never worn goggles before and I had my, my partner gave me these goggles and it's like the, like when you see videos of people who are blind and they get vision for the first time and that sense <laughs> of like wonder, 
It's like these worlds opened up at the bottom of the The underwater world. It is. And there's all this bubble magic and there's light magic and (laughs) rainbows happening on the bottom of and I and I I was so overwhelmed thinking about it, I can't even remember why I was talking about it. (laughs) You were talking about more energy. You were talking about because I asked you about like taking energy from something around you that has more energy yes, presumably water right. so it becomes places. sort of like more aware that there are there's already things that are in momentum around you and part of the skill of energy work is working out what what a which movements and feeling aligns with where you want to go that's why in my work I'm not so interested in outcome. I'm more interested in the way things feel, both for me and how it feels for other people to work with me. Like that's the impression that I want to leave. And in a way what we do is kind of irrelevant because the container is strong. It can, it's adaptable, you know what I mean. So the work that I want to do is connect people back to a sense of themselves back to a sense of belonging rather than estrangement yeah and to a sense of support from the earth to the point where they can relax enough in their nervous system to move out of like fight and flight and denial and fear and to begin the conversation that moves them to agency i mean it's it's really not it's it's slow work that's two steps forward, one step back uh, in community. And by that I, I mean that you have these visions, oh, it would be wonderful for this to transpire in my community. And then you go in there energetically and you find that there's all these kind of skills missing that are human-to-human skills that need to be restored before the conversations can even begin. About and this is sort of the the nitty gritty systems change, you know. Like it's the small group work and the consciousness changing that happens in you know one one to one. Um, What would you say is most missing from your ability to take turns speaking and listening? (laughs) Really, really basic things like. a curiosity about other people's framework, frameworks, a lack of curiosity about other people's frameworks, like a, a not really wanting to know why. Um, I've been teaching um, philosophical ethics to 11-year-olds for the last seven years once wow. a week. And <laughs> um, <laughs> the skills that I use in managing that that classroom are the same skills that I find myself coming to time and time again in group work with adults as well and and it's taking turns listening and speaking and just the the development of, of basic empathy and in a way this sort of has led to the a change of focus in my ecological work as well, I, where I'm getting more interested in sort of 
eco-psychology and tell us about eco-psychology like for somebody yeah. listening that doesn't understand sure. what is eco-psychology because I, I don't under, like I think I understand it but just for sure. somebody that does not know anything about eco-psychology what what is it okay well the probably a good way to explain it is through a practical sort of example so um I used to spend a lot of time working with physical plants and doing bush regeneration as my main my main work and it came to a, a certain point where I realized that there was a deep grief in me even as I was putting on a hopeful face about the future and Eco-psychology is the, the overlap between the sense of self and the place where a person lives and the way that those two fields interact to create belonging and meaning in that person's life. And so as climate change has started to really impact on ecologists' ability to do their work in the field, Rather than just do nothing, I found myself looking for other avenues to explore ecological identity in beyond just working in, in the field with plants because a huge part of working with plants is, one, you've got to work with light. Like the, sea, like the seasons might change, but the equinoxes and the solstices remain the same. You're sort of like tied to patterns. But the predictability of the events around those unchanging things like the pattern of light during the year means that I don't have enough time to make long enough observations to know what is right action before things have changed so much that my observations are redundant. And so where do you actually go with that? You know, like this feeling of of obsolescence it's not like my work has changed it's that what has to motivate me has changed and it's a controversial thing to say but I've had to abandon hope as like the prime motivator in my work and it's been quite a liberating process for me why it's been so liberating is twofold for one hope in some ways, I realized I was using it as a bypassing device because it exists in the future. So it's a way of actually avoiding feelings in the now, for me anyway. And in that way, it can be tied to sort of addictive cycles of dissociation and wanting to armor the heart or protect the heart. And also, it's sort of a bedfellow to despair. And so, it, to me, hope, ironically, ends up being tied into cycles of, of burnout and delusion, disillusionment. And so there's a wonderful writer called Margaret J. Wheatley and she posits that instead of hope we become islands of sanity where <laughs> in one another's presence we're able to discern right action and that right action be the motivation for our work in the world rather than hope 
because it's not tied to outcome and it is always right action no matter what is happening in the world and if that makes sense so that that shift has been really liberating um for me relax into it a bit more if that make rather than just be panicked all the time about decline and the end of things and and that's where the eco-psychology comes in part of how I know I belong to a place is because I can predict things over time this tree is in blossom this week of September every year of my entire life and then it just curls up and dies for no reason or things that are part it triggers deeper stories about not belonging to the earth and the earth abandoning us, you know, which is in fact a massive projection because it's mm. we who have created the illusion of separation from that flow, um, that, that sustenance and that ultimate source of life force energy for us as human beings. In fact, we're an extension of that consciousness and life force energy. Um, just talking about the um the difference between you know hope and despair and then you said about right action there's something that that to me felt like there's almost ownership in that that you're not waiting for something else you know hope is something that you wait for something else to happen but you don't take any there's nothing dynamic about that there's almost a um a, a kind of resignment to the fact it is out of your control, but everything you mentioned after that feels like more empowerment to you being part of action, to being part of the surroundings. It feels dynamic. It feels more hopeful because you have actually taken some action and there's an appreciation that, you know, some things, something, you know, everything changes every day. And that's part of what gives us gives us hope, right? It's not just sitting waiting for a single moment. Those moments happen all the time. And it's being aware of those and being aware of those cycles and appreciating when the blooms do come out and then they do die because that is all the cycle, meaning they're going to come back again. And so I took hope from what you said there rather than that kind of despair of the cycle. Sure. I guess for me, um, replacing hope with meaning, if, if that distinction makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, yeah, definitely your, does. your actions can be meaningful, whether they're actually like achieve what they, you set out to do. Like, and um, this, I guess, is what we're learning together is this, this shift from this feeling of individual responsibility to how to how, what does collective responsibility look, look like and um, learning how to take personal responsibility for for your individually individuality within the collective like mm-hmm. you know um, there's been a huge sort of erasure of, of self over centuries to fit in with groups and um, there seems to be, you know, this uh, emergence of a, a great acceptance of a huge, a, a much broader range of different identification occurring at the moment, particularly in the generations coming up below me, and that's really exciting change to, to see that flexibility, like, and 
self-identifying, you know, it's like um, that struggle between the individual and the group still going to like persist for a while though, I think, yeah. As you speak about meaningful, there's something so beautiful in that because I feel like our relationship often with plants and animals and other sentient living beings here is in very we've been very conditioned for it to be very transactional even when we're saving them you know whereas like meaningful is suddenly relationship it's suddenly like hey i'm gonna do this thing for you even if it's not the like even if it's not the thing that's gonna save you maybe you don't actually need to be saved but i kind of felt like the plant kingdom when you were speaking, I felt the plants really being touched by humans wanting to do meaningful things for them. That's what I felt in the field when you spoke. Yeah. That, you know, kind of random acts of kindness or or just bringing meaning almost, I feel like, might mean more <laughs> than some of the, like, save the world, slightly human, egoic mm-hmm. relationship with human and other where actually you know nobody likes a friend that's trying to save them but everybody really appreciates a friend being thoughtful kind. and meaningful and kind as opposed to controlling you know um and and, and i remember once like i did a channeling and you know the woman was asking how she can save the plants and the plant kingdom just came in and we're like, we don't need to be saved. You need to be like, we're not the problem here. But you're on <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. Like work on your, like, don't, we've got this, we've been here for ages. And, and, and I actually think that humans have it too. Like you've mentioned adaptability a lot. And, you know, one of the messages I've had from the plant and animal kingdom is they are amazed at humans' adaptability. Like hu- humans can like climb trees and swim and travel. Like compared to what plants and animals can do, we have like been given mm-hmm. this massive, like our great superpower is adaptability actually. Yeah. We just haven't acknowledged it as something that we can, you know, like we're, we're still obsessed with trying to stay the same or keep things the same as opposed to going hang on we are the ones that do adaptability on this planet and so we can climb a tree or go into the desert like you know a fish cannot climb a tree <laughs> just can't like it doesn't have that adaptability range that we have like as humans we have this amazing adaptability and i feel like when we're meaningful that adaptability comes out would you agree Yes, and I think that part of the reason why there's such, it's so easy to communicate with plants when you decide to tune into them is because that they can't move in that way and they actually rely on that communication with other species to, to convey their wishes. Like they need to send messages via um, pollinators and insects and pass on information that way chemically, but they also speak directly to the hearts of human beings as well because there there is that's one of the you know I've been working with 
with plants for almost 20 years before they actually started actually speaking to me inside of my heart and giving me instructions. So like there's quite a deal of, of patience required, but it's, it's also like a garden's like a friend, a friend group where like, you know, there are difficult like friends in your garden who like you struggle <laughs> to get on with and you, you'd like to be real, better friends with them than you are. And then they're, they're the ones you've got this bees and flow with and there's always plants that turn up in my garden each year that I haven't planted that birds have like like put in there magically through their droppings and like and uh yeah I think that um in fact climate change has like probably deepened my like sense of uh connection to the wheel of the year because I again had to abandon markers like like seasons, which as far as practising um, the craft, I've never really, like, cut it down here in Australia. I mean, it, it's fine to transpose the and say, okay, we're doing, like, litha, not yule down here. But it's not, litha's not Capricorn energy. Like, it's, those systems came out of nor- the Northern Hemisphere, you know, like, and, and so... Um, <laughs> There's there's too much juggling, like there's too much juggling down here, you know. It can't suddenly be Cancer instead of Capricorn season. Um, I am just like the upside downness. I'm I'm blown. I'm mind blown, and I'm thinking of other conversations we've had with astrologers and with Louise, who was talking about how in the Chinese wheel of the year, she said that in Chinese medicine they don't. The season ends when it ends. <laughs> so there isn't like a day for the season to change. It's when winter ends and it's actually happened that they decide that it's now spring. Do you see what I mean? And 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 like like that's kind of closer to Australia. Where I live, like on Wiradjuri country in this part of country. So including a windy season, like which is like this really tricky false spring at the start of August where you get two weeks of like super warm weather and you think yeah winter's over winter's over and then this feral wind comes up from the southern antarctic ocean for the next month and it's windy season and it gets real and you're like no winter's not over you had <laughs> that that fortnight of energy that gets you through that last stretch of winter like into spring you get the hope you're like yes i've had that that taste of spring now and I could like I can make it through to the true spring through the but um down in Melbourne where where Fee was living the seasons would be completely different down there and recognized differently on different uh just on different country yeah and Melbourne is famous so, for four um, seasons in one day that's what yeah. they used to say about Melbourne it was so changeable you just never never could tell um but I, I, I wish um I wish everybody could see you when you talk about um your plants and your garden, Joe, because I have to say your face just beams with joy when you talk about your plants and your garden. I can I can just feel how much joy it brings you to to work with plants. It's it's literally written all over your face. It it definitely would you say that's where you get your life force from? being in your garden oh, definitely and it's where I get my my lessons about what is what is appropriate for 
what is appropriate action for, for right now? I just look around me and I see what's happening in my garden and I'm like, well, that's what's appropriate action. That garden looks like, that part looks like it needs a bit more compost. Gee, am I nourishing like enough areas of my life so that they'll be like, uh, it won't be some flogged out soil that I can't grow things in when, when it's appropriate, like to plant seeds. Um, um, part of having access to more consistent energy, there's an Australian expression about you stop trying to push shit uphill. And um, <laughs> it's sort of like, it's a bit like, um, you know, you try, you, you know, the timing's not right for something, but you want it to happen. And you're pushing and you're pushing and you're pushing and you're making a little bit of progress. And then all the things come together and everything happens in two days. You've been trying to like push for, for the past three months. You could have just let be like, and so, and I guess that's what I was getting into earlier about becoming more sensitive to what's moving and available around you energy wise, because there's lots of different streams um, moving around you at any given time. So. Do I want slow energy? What's the slow moving energy around me that I know that when I go there, I can feel my energy go slower? Okay, so I can go to that place. And then you just use your imagination. I just mm-hmm. imagine myself like sort of sliding into that energy sideways and I catch a lift with that and I don't have to then expend my energy. I can sort of like, uh, imitate it yeah and learn learn and it's a bit like how I learned to sing Uh, when you're singing with a band or like on a stage you often you know you can't hear the band properly to hear whether you're singing in pitch and so how I learned what different notes were was I know that I'm making that note when my ears vibrating in this part of my skull Mm -hmm. that's how I know that I'm singing in tune like for that note and so when I sing it's actually like an exercise in vibrating parts of my skull so that I know that I'm like singing in tune right and that way it doesn't matter whether the ba- I can hear the band or not I know that I sound awesome <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you because you mentioned when you wrote to us about the systematic energy vampire of capitalism, capitalism. <laughs> would you would you say that and I want you to speak a bit more about that but like I feel like Dropping into another energy flow is a brilliant way to get out. Or if you feel that energy vampire sucking on you, it's like, as you were speaking, I was like, that's a brilliant way to get out of that energy vampire vibe and into a different current. Like, it's almost like that human adaptability of like, I'm going to go and be a rock now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just not be on the same place as their energy vampire when it's affecting me. Um, I don't know if that resonates, but it's just what I was seeing when you were speaking. Yeah. I I think about that a lot of Karela in relation to activism because um, but for so long in my life, I, you know, my, my parents were heavily involved in anti-nuclear activism in the 70s and, and 80s and um, in feminist activism. Um, and so much of activism in the late, sort, you know, 
later part of the century, the last century, and into this century was very oppositional and it's, it was big against things. And at a certain point I, I came to realise that it actually felt like I was energising systems with my oppositional energy because it was still actually acknowledging somehow their legitimacy to oppose them. And what systems of power really fear is disengagement, not opposition. Like, um, hmm. uh, and Sorry, just so, let that land a moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is such an important statement you've just said. And can you just repeat it again? Because I really yes. want everybody listening to hear Systems it. of power want engagement at any cost and they don't care whether it's negative engagement as long as you remain engaged. What they fear is disengagement and removal of your energy from their systems because that's what they feed on, your, your engagement. And that's why they say it's better to, rather than be anti-war, our message should be pro-peace. So we are actively, you know, so it's not being anti the thing that you are opposing because that in itself still gives it energy and there's a direct fight to it. But if you're pro something, then it's, it's, uh, it's not giving the, it's giving a different energy against the thing that you're trying to oppose. I'm not speaking very well, but do you know what I mean? It's better to be pro something rather than anti something would you agree does that go with the disengagement I, I think that i think the destructive energy certainly has its place but i actually think that the protest movement has become a place of spectacle rather than actual like direct and meaningful action and, and that's why i would urge people particularly to withdraw i mean spectacle is amazing too like extinction rebellion does some amazing like work using the spectacle and the carnival like you know and that sort of like um atmosphere where it's a sort of a mirroring of a mad world using humor and comedy in some ways to to parody it and satire it rather than everything have to be so serious as as well um but yeah, I think it's sort of become a bit of a spectacle and I think a lot of things have like become a spectacle and I think that that's part of what happens when capitalism consumes philosophy. Like it, it turns it into a spectacle because it wants things to be consumed. It doesn't want people to actually feel their own power. It wants them to constantly hand their power over to images or to, to simulations of things that are me- meaningful and real. and. I think that that's why a lot of governments are in trouble at the moment because they've actually like they've hollowed they've hollowed out the meaning of, of so many uh, core values that used to hold um, societies together in times of immense stress. That when they now like beat that drum, it's just jingoism. That it it doesn't it's not a call that people mm-hmm. respond to anymore. And that's, I guess, anymore. Yeah. No, it's just, it's kind of reflexive and it, it makes people feel things, but, but because people used to feel things because there was a genuine foundation there that could be of meaning that could be called upon to create outrage or, or belonging or, but I, I feel like that's actually been, um, that has been outsourced as well. That that is also part of how cap, 
capital dehumanizes and and removes energy it, it outsources people's personal agency so that as a child for example almost everybody i knew could do basic car maintenance fix really simple like plumbing problems in their own houses and do do a range of things and they had these skills in their hands and mm. knowing that they had these skills in their hands created a an underlying sense of if things go wrong I can take care of myself. So part of the way that capital kept its capitalism kept itself alive through neoliberalism was the outsourcing of people's birthrights, which is knowing how to take care of themselves, to professionals. I presume is where the witchcraft comes in and the medicine <laughs> and the magic, you know, like because plants are a major way of how we take care of ourselves when we're sick and have always been, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Until they burnt the witches. Am I right? <laughs> well, that's right. And and it's that's kind of what's been interesting me as well is sort of like thinking about the earth changes at the moment and, and that seeing that there's going to be a mass migration of humans around the planet over the next decades and that that means that there'll be a mass migration of plants as well because humans always take their plants with them as well and um the the entire ecosystem of the earth and where's going to be viable for growing food is like changing and there's just this massive flux and sort of shift occurring at the moment and it, it made me think well what how can we prepare for a time when we won't physically have access to a lot of the medicines that we we need? What's going to replace physical medicine and what's going to be the energetic like replacement for um and could there be a, a new sort of or an adjunct to homeopathy that uses vibrational fields of plants or direct communication from plants where the, the plant is the consulting physician in the room with the, mm. the practitioner. So, Which um, I just want to say is ancient. Yes. You know, yeah. there are tribes <laughs> all over the world that use plant frequencies yeah. to heal. Yeah. My guides say that modern science gets it wrong because it tries to get the chemistry of plants when actually the healing is always frequency. It's always the sound that the plants sing that is the most healing component in the plant. And that has been known. It's just in, in this taking away of our power, it has been dismantled in our own innate knowledge i think there's a desensitization to our environment and the world we live in isn't there so there's a not an appreciation of of our environment and how we interact with it and therefore what it can do for us and 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 vice versa i just think there's a desensitization completely we we we're completely comfortable we don't ever have to step out of um, in the moment, anyway, knowing that we can, things are are immediately accessible. We never think about where our food comes from. We never have to think about, or a lot of people don't think about where their food comes from, or any form of connection to the land, because things just magically appear in a supermarket, and that's the only connection they have to fruit, vegetables, and plants. And and I think that you know, as you say, people are getting more and more displaced now. 
and, and moving more and more into urban areas? And does that mean that we really do le- lose that connection as people become more and more urban dwellers? And has that been an influence on how we've been desensitized to that nature and, and nourishment we can get from the land and appreciation? Sure. I mean, I think it's been a, a very a much longer process than that, and it's it's tied into thousands and thousand year old stories about us not having a place in the garden and being cast out of like the place of our own sustenance and a like, deep feminine wound, <laughs> that Eve wound, right there. <laughs> yeah, I I think I I spend less. I'm trying to spend a lot more time in a state of of trust, which is that I just let the things that are necessary for evolution come in and trust that they'll they'll find their place. And so when I think about the history of life and how many times even that we know of, like that it's come so so close to ceasing and um humans never have the full picture and to me that's a a huge (laughs) (laughs) do not give the humans the full picture (laughs) leave them in the dark so that they don't panic more than they already are with the half picture One one of the tenets of deep ecology is to to let go of your idea of yourself as an individual experiencing pain as part of your personal story and to even move beyond the idea that you might be experiencing collective pain of your species to, to tap into the idea that you're actually a conduit for the very cries of the earth as she evolves as well and that a lot of what passes through us and, and that we experience as fleeting despair or or joy or like that that it actually is the consciousness of Gaia passing through us because mm. we are a, a mysterious and essential part of the consciousness of Gaia. And I we think are we are the communicators be. and the translators and yeah. you know like what we do is we are the ones that can speak to a plant and then send that message to a bird. Like we are, like the, the other communities do do not have the conversation abilities that we have. Yeah. And I think as we come into our human adulthood, because I believe that we're just at the end of our teenagehood, and so we're kind of graffitiing and rebelling and partying. <laughs> and like being like I don't want to do it like but as we come into our adulthood I believe our role is to be in ceremony like it's to to hold the ceremony and be in conversation and I know you've said like new ceremony is yeah what what do you feel about new earth and new ceremony what I what I was just going to talk before I get to that, I was just going to go back to this idea of, of adulthood and teenagehood and how you said, you know, our our role and what our role is and we're the only ones who can do this. And I think that as we become more mature, we're actually going to find that 
so many other species can again do what we think that we alone are like the the holders <laughs> of um and i think that the the emerging um metaphor for human kind of the mycelium that that is like coming forward so prominently has got so much to teach us about yeah. like about how much communicating plants really can do with one another and like and um uh yeah but as far as new ceremony it's just sort of like look it's agriculture's going to change and and we just can't be burning the wicker man every year like we've been doing for two, for 5000 years you know what i mean like this idea that ever, that things are in the past or that that pagan ways are in the past or that wicker's in the past where it's a continuous like a thread of magic that's that never ceased and is is always been held by people on the earth and kept alive and As far as that taking turns in in listening, like one of the, just to begin that conversation where, again, the earth is acknowledged as the primary stakeholder um, rather than ourselves as the primary stakeholder. Um, I've been so, so involved in the Burning Man movement in Australia and it was really interesting for me to see a group of people who didn't have ceremonial magic practice come together and actually have a couple of experiences over a weekend of ceremonial magic and to see that the energy that could be created from thousands of people like um, focusing at once. But it got me thinking, you know, what would happen if I invited like people who weren't who did have experience in holding space for ceremonial magic to come together this is sort of what I hope to work on in the next year this sort of like opening up this opportunity for inquiry with the earth that that doesn't it's not about seeding ideas it's more of a compost sort of situation of like creating like the 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 soil that will hold like seeds that come that come forth but I believe that we need rituals for what we call climate change, which is ju- which are earth changes, evolutionary changes that we're part of and um, that is part of a collective healing crisis that is happening for humanity that is also part of us learning about collectivism and that is this the shift into Aquaria. It's like learning, as I said earlier about collective responsibility rather than individual sacrifice to systems you know and um it involves lots and lots of consciousness raising at like interpersonal level like because and the hardest what I'm all about is getting people curious enough to take that first step from like the path of like everything's fine and I'll just play by the rules and I'll be rewarded by God at the end of my life to, mm-hmm. and to see that the life doesn't fall apart with that first step, that, you know, mm-hmm. hellfire doesn't rain. You know, the programming is so deep and gnarly over multiple generations and, um, Luckily for me, my family were cast out of the church, so I didn't even have to like my my sort of my delusionment was probably cast on me a bit early in life. But um, 
I'm really, really grateful for that early um, upbringing in, in the church, though, because, you know, it introduced me to uh, singing in a group and how that can feel at a very, very early age and um, what it feels like when people steal their hearts and, and create a unified field of consciousness all thinking about one thing together, like, and um, I kind of... Uh, come back to, oh, I'm not going to say I've come back to Jesus. I don't mean it in that way. Like <laughs> I've come back to appreciate Jesus in a way that I sort of abandoned, I guess, in my teenage years, like a lot of teenagers do. Um, and I guess that that's sort of the, for me being a Westerner, Christ's my access point to what is like a, a universal truth about you know, what goes around comes around essentially and, and the the mutual obligation that we have to one another because of the the mutual effect that our effect that our actions have like upon ourselves and one another. Um yeah. I feel like you've spoken so much about like meaningful action, responsible action and what's come into me. It's like one of the ways to find that action is to just ask what is the life force cost of this? You know, like what's the life? If we come back to the protest, it's like if you're expending your life force and giving your life force energy to the system, is it the right action? Like is the right action a, like where's the life? I think asking where's the life force cost or or, or even in the supermarket analogy that Fiona gave, it's like to go to a garden and and take, remove a vegetable because it's grown is a much lower life force cost than the cost of mass farming, packaging, traveling. You know, the life force cost to getting food into a supermarket is massive <laughs> compared to the life force cost of gardening. And I feel like that question is just such a powerful question to ask when trying to discern right action because I feel like if Gaia has the main stake from what I know of Mother Earth is her choice is always the most life force efficient choice or the most life force creating even better life force creating choice is the choice of the great mother yeah I would agree with that. My my follow-up question, and I can't believe we're nearly out of time already, but something you touched on, which I would like to ask, and that's about magic. Because I find there's something so beautiful in that. And I would love to know what you mean by, by magic and what that means to you. Because I can imagine people are listening who, you know, this conversation might be something that there is very new to them and some of the things that we've been talking about. So what do you mean by, what do you mean by magic? Well, <laughs> nothing less than <laughs> causing the universe to align with your will. <laughs> That's magic. <laughs> I'll give a, ser a more serious answer. I think that magic in a way is 
is an extension of the idea of life force in that it recognises, again, that there are energies available around you. And it uses symbolism and the imagination to create stories that help you stay connected to the meaning of cycles in your life over your entire lifetime. To me, that's the foundation of magic. It's a meaning-making tool. And Mm. when you have this tool with you, you don't have to find the meaning of life. You have the tool to enact that as a verb throughout your life. It relies on things that are available for everyone at a pragmatic level, and that's the thing that I really want to emphasise, the pragmatic nature of magic in that it helps you align your action with the time where there will be the most ease, flow and available energy to support that, whether that be it's the time of the year, say, we're we're on the eve of the summer solstice here, where there's the most illumination of the year and the most available energy for things. And so this is the time of the year to start the things that you want to have the most energy to start them rather than, for example, trying to start them in the dead of winter where Karela is, which is a time for protecting your energy and keeping a tiny light burning through the night until the dawn breaks the next day. So that's the essence of magic, understanding how you can use natural cycles around you to instruct you about the way to live a life that's going to give you more peace and harmony. Wow. That to me is that (laughs) perfect summary from start to end because, Joe, I didn't get the chance to say at the beginning, but the intention that you set and the way that you explained how you felt about that and the intention that you came in moved me so much that I didn't get the chance to say that at the beginning. I felt a real connection when you said that and I was like, poof, it really hit me. And you've just done the same in your, in that comment there. It's a perfect rounding of bookends of, of that where I deeply, I deeply felt that. I actually look for the magic in every day and it's something I write down every night before yeah. I go to bed is the magic and I just love the way that you express both the flippant and the I'm going to come up with the more serious answer they're both both connected in their different ways so thank you thank you so much for that and thank you so much for such a a beautiful conversation that as always takes us into into new areas where we could have deep dive into any any one of those and I feel like there's still a whole lot of questions we we have for you so many um, places to go with you always the case but we will make sure that we will share um where people can find out more about your work and can connect with you directly um should they have 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 some questions and, and want to follow up but I know Karila over to you for for the close <laughs> I want to know who we should speak to next oh okay uh 
Hmm. <laughs> Here in Australia? Anywhere in Anywhere? the world. But whoever comes to you. <laughs> oh, man. Gosh, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> you know who I want to say? I want to say this beautiful astrologer, Timothy Halloran, over based in the US. He did my chart a couple of years ago and he, he looked at my cancer in Saturn in the eighth house of death place when he said, here's your mantra for the second half of your life. When your work is rest, life is pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's your <laughs> mantra for that. Awesome. I've taken that, really taken that to heart and, and I guess that's uh, to summarise sort of like my, what I really want to say about, about energy and life force is that it's, it's everywhere and it's readily accessible and it's not a bunch of tricks and spells and incantations. It's just a matter of, of getting better at observing and feeling mm. and trusting going with what you're observing and feeling. Mm. And that's at the heart of like being able to access more energy. All of that hoo-ha and frosting on top is just to keep people from finding out how easy it is to have better, more connected lives with more energy. <laughs> it's really easy. <laughs> Love that. Love that message. Thank you okay. so much, Joe. It's been an absolute privilege to have this conversation. Thank you. And for your beautiful oh, smiley face. You. Honestly, it brings me joy. So thank you. <laughs> May the life force be with you too. So we just had a fellow Australian. I say fellow, like I'm 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 claiming it now. Um the surrogate Australian. <laughs> I know. And, and you know, like so many of our conversations, we could have just kept on rolling for for hours because we had so much ground um I felt that we still could cover, but we covered so much in that conversation. And I meant it when I said that, you know, for for anyone that was listening rather than watching that Joel's face just lit up the minute she talked about her plants in her garden, like her, I could feel her connection and her passion to, to plant life. It's just incredible. It was, it, and and I could feel the plants with her. Like there was <laughs> sometimes when I was like, she's not speaking, the plants are spe <laughs> speaking but right now. <laughs> When, when, you know, we asked her about like magic and, and, and how to look for guidance. And she's like, I, I just go out in the garden and it tells me what to do. I need more water. And I'm using my phrases now, but like things like I need, I need more water. I need more nurture. I need more composting. I need to just release and let go and come into bloom. And you can start to see when you become more aware of your surroundings and conscious about the life force around you how you can be in tune with it, how it can tell you. And I love the fact that she said, if you use your imagination, there's a lesson in everything around us when we use our imagination. That really hit me. And I love, I love that what she was saying about just doing stuff with meaning mm. and kind of simplifying so much of the like, save the world, you know, what she was saying about eco-psychology, just there were many things in that conversation that blew my mind, but eco-psychology and, and our psychological relationship with the land around us 
just like you know and and the one the one other point around um systems of power yeah that they don't fear opposition they fear the removal of energy and disengagement and it's like uh huh you think about it you don't give airtime you literally starve those conversations of oxygen they can't exist yeah when the Rupert yeah. Murdoch's are, ga- are gone and there's no platform and oxygen or microphone, megaphone for those kind of like systems of power, then they just simply can't exist. They hate to be ignored. They hate it. They those hate systems, it. You know? And, and, you know, maybe we don't even want them hating it, but maybe it's just like start the animal way, the, the natural way is like starve the food poisoning out starve the poison out you know um and i i love as well that she gave that that i'm gonna use this like concept of tapping into the energy flows Mm -hmm. that are around you so you're not having to it's like a way out of this self-sufficiency wound self-sufficiency life force wound i think so many of us in the west are just absolutely hammering like i'm going to be applying that that idea of tapping into the other currents literally today (laughs) i love i well i love it when we've got a takeaway that's immediate and i'm going to be doing what i do every night and i'm going to be looking for the magic in the day before i go to bed (laughs) um so yeah another another great conversation that that took us on all different directions and hopefully some new new wisdom for everybody and curiosity for everybody everybody that's listening um so yeah we're hugely grateful to joe for for joining us may the life force be with you and you too we hope this conversation has topped up your life force energy if it has then please help us spread the life force like share subscribe all of that (laughs) And may the life force be with all of us.